I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Simran Jeet Singh. Simran is the executive director of the Inclusive America Project at the Aspen Institute. Recognized among Time Magazine's 16 people fighting for more equal America, he is an equality fellow with the Open Society Foundations, senior advisor on equity and inclusion for YSC Consulting, and a visiting professor at Union Seminary. Simran is a regular contributor to the Washington Post, CNN, and Time Magazine, and writes a monthly column for Religion News Service. 
In July of 2022, Simran released his first book, The Light We Give, How Sick Wisdom Can Transform Your Life, from Riverhead Books. So a very warm welcome to you, Simran. It's such a pleasure to meet you. We have a good friend in common, Valerie Carr, who I sometimes describe as the last friend I made before the pandemic hit, you know, which is true. <laughs> She's the last person I kind of met for lunch, you know, not knowing her beforehand. And then, mm. then we were friends through isolation and so on. Uh, and I'm just delighted to have some time with you today to get to know you. Same. Thank you. And um, I haven't I haven't mentioned this to you yet, but I've been reading you for years. So it's, oh, it's, a, okay. it's an honor to spend some time with you. So thank you for having me on. Well, thank you. You know, you describe yourself as a brown-skinned, turban-wearing, beard-loving, sports-playing dude trying to survive in modern America, which sounds pretty challenging for you growing up in <laughs> South Texas. So if you can tell us more about your path and how you came to be where you are today. Yeah, my, my parents immigrated from, from northern India, uh, the Punjab region, in the 70s uh, to the United States. And um, I'm not quite sure why they thought uh, that Texas would be the best place to raise <laughs> to raise a family, uh, especially a sick family. And, you know, we ended up as, as four brothers, uh, all of whom uh, shared uh, similar brown skin tones and facial hair and wore turbans. And um, so much of our, our childhood and upbringing was uh, trying to figure out what it looks like uh, to find happiness in a world where so many people are are trying to deny it to us, and um, you know, in 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 my experience growing up, it very much felt like this was particular. Like nobody understood what I was going through, and, and in some ways, that was true. Uh, my my experiences are unique, but I think at the end of the day, these are these are the challenges that we're all facing, right? What does it feel like to be an outsider, to be judged, uh, to not fit in? Um, and, and really, at the end of the day, trying to find light in a world that can often feel difficult and challenging and dark. And so that, that to me is, is really, I think, the, the shared question uh, that so many of us have. And by virtue of my identity uh, as a Sikh and, and where I grew up, I think I, I learned pretty quickly uh, some answers to, to those questions that, that I'm hoping to share with people through this book. So you credit Sikh philosophy as really saving you. And I'm curious if you always felt connected to the Sikh tradition or did that come later for you? Yeah, you know, it's interesting as a growing up in this country as an outsider, there, there's something about um, what identity does for you as, as a way um, of giving you refuge. And, and so for me, in many ways, even though I didn't really feel that attached to the philosophy of Sikh teachings, um, I always identified as a Sikh and really cherished that aspect of who I was. And uh, I think I think some of it was uh, intentionally instilled by my parents. Like they they wanted me to feel proud as a Sikh. I think because the the opposite of that would be to feel ashamed. Or to feel embarrassed, and, mm -hmm. and that would not be a great way to live, let alone to preserve uh, tradition. But I think as 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 the years went on, it went beyond a superficial pride. I mean, especially I think for me that the turning point uh, was when I was eighteen years old, 
Um, and that was when the terrorist attacks of 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was a senior in high school and I had to start asking myself the same questions that my father had asked himself when he first moved here. And that is, is wearing a turban and keeping my beard and not cutting my hair. These are all choices. Mm. These are all choices we make every single day. And is it worth it? Am I getting more value out of this uh, than I'm paying to society for choosing to look different? And that's when I really started to delve into Sikh teachings, trying to understand if this is something that I wanted to hold on to, or if it's something that I was ready to let go of. And, you know, it was, it was, I, I wouldn't say that it was a, an identity crisis of any kind. It was, it was certainly a question. Um, it, I wasn't, you know, to the point where I was ready to stop wearing a turban or to cut my hair, but I wanted, I, I really did have this existential question of is, is this a path that I want to continue following? And I will say that it is, through the uh, study and my attempts to practice Sikh teachings by, by trying to live by uh, the philosophy that I really began to appreciate uh, its, its worldview and, and what it has to offer. And that, that sort of set me on the path to really deepen uh, my own connection to Sikh teachings. It's really interesting from a distance, even though I spent years in India, you know, it wasn't really particularly amongst Sikh communities and, you know, with the most superficial understanding. I'd say if I was going to have two associations with tradition, one was going to be like, it's kind of militant, isn't it? And and that reminded me of, um, just before I started recording podcasts today, I was listening to um, Preet Bharara's podcast. It was a rerun of a podcast he'd done with Isabel Wilkerson after uh, she published Cast. And she was talking about meeting a, a young man from India who she asked him what caste he'd been born into. And he said, the Kshatriya, our warrior caste. And, and she said she was thinking, looks kind of small to me. You know, like, doesn't look that strong. How can you be a warrior? And Preet laughed being Indian himself and having, you know, a variety of family members. So that's one of the most superficial associations. And the other one actually, in a funny way, came from my lunch with Valerie where uh, she was telling me story after story of, of service, and they all involved feeding people. And I thought, oh, they're really into feeding people, <laughs> which made a lot of sense. You know, like, um, you know, you, we were just talking to Lily, who's producing this podcast, who's a student of um, Ram Dass's guru named Curly Baba, and he was so famous for his emphasis on feeding people. We were, as a group of Westerners, would often ask him for the most esoteric kind of strange, you know, little known way to transform our consciousness and be totally happy. And you just say, feed people. Uh, and it, was, it was such a theme. And so it really struck me as very resonant. I, I hope this isn't too totally reductionistic, but if you were going to give some synopsis of the Sikh philosophy, what would it be? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I love your reflections. And, and if we can pick up on them, um, I think there's there's a very simple uh, path to get from uh, where I would begin to, to mm -hmm. where you are taking us. And that is, uh, you know, the, the first and foremost teaching in Sikh philosophy, um, and it's the first term in the Sikh scripture, it's Ik Omkar. Uh, and that means the one force that connects us all. Mm -hmm. and And part of what this teaching offers us is 
is of the belief in what the Buddhist tradition might refer to as interdependence. And it's, it's, or, you know, you might, you might even take it to codependent rising to say that there is something that inextricably connects each and every aspect of this world. And, you know, it's, it's a really interesting concept because it is both extremely simple and also profound and transformative. You know, it's, it's simple enough that it's, you know, I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old. They, it's the first teaching that I shared with them from Sikh philosophy and they understand it. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, it's not intuitive, but it is something that young kids can comprehend. It's the first concept I learned growing up in Texas. It's the first concept my parents learned growing up in Punjab. And so it is, it is deeply simple at its core that every aspect of this world is interconnected. And, and the next step in the teaching is that if you can come to feel this, to go beyond the intellectualizing of the oneness of the Ikwankar, then you can really get to a place where you are experiencing happiness or love or joy at all moments. And, and the, the idea is essentially, um, you know, if, if we take it to a more mundane sort of experience of love, interpersonal love, and, and we know that the people that we love the most, we constantly feel connected to them, whether it's our kids or our partners or our parents or our friends. The, the idea within Sikh teachings is that we can expand our capacity to love, to go from these momentary interpersonal relationships to how we experience the world at every moment. Mm-hmm. And in our tradition, we, the, the Punjabi word for this is mitas. You can taste the sweetness of life at all times. Mm-hmm. And, and then the third step, and this is where you were taking us earlier, is that the natural expression of love is action. Mm-hmm. And, and you serve the people you love. And I take care of my kids, even though sometimes I don't want to, <laughs> because it's, it's just what you do uh, when you love someone. And so this is where the tradition of, of service and justice becomes so central to Sikh practice. And it is an expression of love. It is the feeling of oneness that moves one to, to act uh, for others because mm-hmm. they are seen as connected and other people's suffering is our own suffering and to reduce their suffering is a gift that we can give to them and to give to ourselves and so those would be the i think the the three core elements of six teachings that i really try and uh, explore as the main themes mm-hmm. of this book it's it's oneness it's love and then it's service it's lovely and your book is a really beautiful offering i'm curious as to whether it's been a long time in the making for you Oh gosh, I am 30 something years old. So, um, you know, I've been in some ways, this is the book that I've been wanting to write since childhood in that, um, you know, there, I, I would go to the bookshelves in bookstores and libraries and I would see books on, uh, Islam and Hinduism and of course Buddhism. Um, uh, millions of books. I mean, how many books are there on Christianity? Yeah. And, and I would never find a book about my own tradition. And it's the world's fifth largest. Mm-hmm. And there are about 30 million Sikhs around the world. And there was something so strange about being so visible in a, in a world and in a country where everyone 
would see me everywhere I went, right? They would see my turban. They would see my face. They would have assumptions about me. Mm -hmm. They would think that they knew me. But really, where would they have learned? There are very few places in the American context, including with, with literature, with books. And so I'd always wanted to write a book. And I think I started really in earnest just as I was finishing up my PhD in religion at Columbia. Um, and at the time, I was thinking of writing something more academic. And then I realized uh, as the world felt like it was changing and I could tell people were more anxious and fearful about what was happening in our world, whether it was political or over the years as I was writing, uh, you know, physical and, and psychological. I mean, it just felt like there was so much pain all around us. And so I, I started in earnest in 2016. So it was a much longer journey uh, than I would have anticipated. It took six years for this mm-hmm. book to come out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as you may know, with, with your with your writing, uh, a lot changes in six yeah. years. And yeah. that's the world changes and your vision changes and even you as a person change. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's been a really wonderful journey to be able to bring all that together in this writing. I see that your publisher is Riverhead, which published one of my books uh, called Faith which was the hardest book I think I've ever written and will, I think, remain that throughout the course of my lifetime, mm. even if I write many more. And uh, one of the things somebody said to me in advising me, one of the time, one of the many times I was really stuck, was um, you have to stop thinking of yourself as the person writing this book and start thinking of yourself as the first person who gets to read this book. Like if you empty out and just process and it moves through you, there you are, you and your screen. You go, oh, look at that. You know? <laughs> and then I think that's, the, that's great one of the parts that's really relevant to taking so long uh, sometimes is that um, uh, same woman said to me, you know, a lot of people would assume that you're writing a book about a topic like this because you're an expert and you want to impart your expertise, but much more likely you're writing a book about a topic like this because you're really trying to understand it and the the writing of it is part of the understanding of it. And that I think was very true. It took me a long time. <laughs> yeah. It's it's so true. I mean I, I had this a very similar experience and well, you know, what's what's interesting about this book, I think, and, and one of the real challenges for me is that the the central tenet of Sikh philosophy is that we suffer because of our egos, right? You might recognize something familiar there. Um, We suffer because of our egos, and the way to happiness is to decenter our egos, to become selfless. Mm -hmm. And and so that, if if you had asked me for one core point of the book, that would be it for me. And at the same time, my publisher really pushed me to write this book as a memoir. Mm -hmm. And I really struggled with that, because how could I write about myself and not make the book self-centered. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it felt like such an impossible task and, mm-hmm. and, and very much. I mean, I, I told my editor as I was writing it and as he was giving me this advice, I said, I am willing to try that. But what I'm not, what I'm not going to do is present myself as some model of perfection or someone who has all the answers. And so part of the experience to your point, Sharon, is I think the best mechanism or method that I found to share these stories was to bring forward my own imperfections and and not just as a way of saying I'm not perfect, but also for me to explore 
these these very big themes that I want to understand better. And I think that that practice through through writing really helped me clarify some of my own ideas and and how I wanted to live through uh, the imperfections that I was exploring. No, it's great, and it also you know brings us right to the heart of what is a very difficult spiritual dilemma. You know, say something like a teaching about service because. Uh, we find ourselves in one another, and it seems essential that we serve others in order to be happy ourselves, and that we have to feed people. <laughs> you know that uh, we just learn that from so many different lineages and, and so many different ways of practice. And at the same time, we burn out, you know, or we get overcome, or we get exhausted. And so there has to be something that, not in a selfish way or a defensive way, but just kind of. Um, looking at the way things are, you know, like in a, a realistic way that says, well, there has to be some love for myself too. And that has to, uh, it has to be here in this equation. Yeah. Well, I think, I think this is one of the, one of, one of the aspects of American culture uh, that I have been observing and, and really just, you know, as a student of, of multiple religious traditions, mm-hmm. including, including my own, um, it just seems to me that our way of operating in this country and in the modern West where our identities are so important to us and, and we constantly are thinking about who we are in opposition to one another, right? Like on the basis of race or gender or sexual orientation or religion or whatever it is, we're constantly defining ourselves and the very act of self-definition only increases our boundaries with the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, those boundaries are, w- are what we might in our traditions refer to as ego, right? Mm-hmm. We are just creating a bigger and bigger wall that prevents us from, from really connecting. And so I, it's, it's, it's clear to me that as I look at the people around us and, and really struggling with this question of, well, I am trying to to make our world a better place. And I, I'm doing that out of a moral or ethical obligation, which I admire. And I think it's really powerful. It's also clear why we are constantly ending up in the same place, uh, which is just the reinforcement of our own identities and our own distinctions and our own divisions. And here we are so polarized. And so to me, it, it, there has to be another approach what what we might call a middle a middle path right a different way that goes mm-hmm. beyond our sort of instincts of flight and fight and really takes us into uh, ourselves in a way that we're we're really un- unable to open up right now and so this is this is part of my own journey and and where i have found real benefit and the opportunity to share some of this with the world is, I, I think, for me at least, uh, a, a hope of service that I can that I can offer something that has at least brought me more joy and calm in my own life. That's great. And then for the book to be released in 2022, which has been an incredibly turbulent time. I had a book that came out in 2020, and it was like, whoa, this is odd. <laughs> this is very strange. <laughs> How does it feel to have it, it into strange. the world right now? Yeah. yeah, I mean, the the funny thing is, um, any 
any moment for for messages like these, any any moment is a terrible moment and simultaneously a, a perfect moment. And, <laughs> and and it it speaks to the nature of our world. And you know, part of part of what I've been reflecting on over the last six years, especially, um, is for for days and then for months and then for years we have told ourselves life life will get better and then we'll be happy and then things will be aligned and then everything will be perfect and we can resume normalcy whatever we mean by that and and i think what we're learning is that life life is life and the world is the mm-hmm. world and these challenges will continue coming and essentially we're lying to ourselves when we say that things will will be perfect at some point i mean the world has never been that way mm-hmm. and at least as far as i can tell it, it won't be that way and so really for me part of part of what i've learned through the pandemic especially um has been how liberating it can be to let go of the things you can't control and it's 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 very counterintuitive um you know every night you make your calendar for the next day your schedule your routine um and then and then to be thrown off of that and say actually there is there is a larger force in the world and, and you don't control as much as you think you do there's you know there's some humility in expect and accepting that reality and and the same has been true for the book that you know you you do what you can from where you are in the words of tony morrison and and you see where the world operates with that and so I, I did, you know, when I first started writing, have real um, ambitions and excitement. And, and I'm realizing now that so much of that also was tied up in ego. And now to sort of let it go and to say, you know, the world is the world mm-hmm. and I will just control what I can. Um, yeah, that's that's been a it's been it's been a really lovely way to, to mm-hmm. share this book with everyone. Well, I was struck by how much of the book is about the process of getting to know oneself and coming into contact with our deepest sense of integrity and morals and how we can actively work to live and embody those values. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of, part of why I really wanted to write about that is because I feel like that's a privilege that I have received. I mean, from my parents and from my tradition and elsewhere. Um, And, and if it was not for, especially the intentionality of my parents, I don't, I don't think I would have received that from anywhere else. I mean, we don't, we don't learn this in our schools. We, we certainly don't learn this from our film and TV and, and whatever media sources we're consuming. Um, and so, so where, where does it really come from for us to learn how to journey into ourselves and, and to really introspect and reflect and grow and, and create visions for, for the type of people we really ultimately want to be. You know, I've had this experience in the last few years. I mentioned my girls are really young. Yeah. Um, where, you know, we live in New York City. There are all sorts of incredible opportunities for us here. And, and part of what my wife and I have realized is it is so easy to get sucked into the entrapments of the world and let your mind trick you into thinking, well, that's what we want because it, it will make us successful or it's right. what will make our kids successful. And, and we've had to several times and, and we do this almost daily now uh, to, to pull ourselves back and say, Hey, are we, are we making this decision on the basis of 
what we think success is or what we think will make our girls happy. Mm-hmm. And then we've realized those are two very, very different things. And, and they set us yeah. up yeah. on entirely different trajectories. So, so I, I feel like I've had the opportunity uh, to explore this in ways that, that a lot of people haven't. And, and that to me is just fortune in, in terms of family and parenting and tradition and, and all of these things. But they, they seem to me uh, like aspects of our existence that should be taken more seriously. And that's, that's, I'm, I'm hoping to raise that through, through my own story. Well, that's great. You know, when you do classical loving kindness meditation in the Buddhist tradition, uh, you do it through the silent repetition of certain phrases, whether you're thinking of yourself or your closest friend or your child or the person uh, who works in the grocery store down the street, whoever it might be. Um, as long as the phrases are, are like fairly okay, sometimes we have to change the phrases to kind of fit. But for the most part, we use very general phrases. And, and a common set would be beginning with oneself, may I be safe, be happy, be healthy, uh, live with ease. Live with ease means in the things of day-to-day life, may I live with ease, not with ease of heart, not engaged in so much struggle around livelihood, family. And um, and when I was practicing in Burma in the 80s, uh, doing loving-kindness practice intensively, um, I had a somewhat different set of phrases, but the fourth phrase was very similar. Uh, may, I, may I live with ease or may I have ease of well-being? And I, I didn't like that phrase. I thought, oh, that's stupid. You know, like, it's kind of petty. <laughs> like, who cares about that, you know? I was repeating things like maybe free of mental suffering. I like that one, but um, nonetheless, it was it was that kind of environment where it was a very strict traditional environment. So I just did what I was told to do, and there was some point in which I just fell in love with that fourth phrase. And I thought we have so many decisions, so many decision points, so many choices, and some sometimes some crazy moral dilemmas. And may I live with ease? What an incredible way to live, you know. This was in contrast mm. with a friend of mine who, at that time, she worked for the federal government in D.C., and and she fell in love with that phrase, may I live with ease. And her decisions became a matter of, does this pass the may I live with ease test? And that's how I decided mm. yes or no. And uh, I have another friend who's an artist who made a stamp with, with ink, you know, that kind of stamp, may I live with ease. Um, and I told my friend, and in fact, lent it to her when she was working for the government. And she said every once in a while, she would like randomly stamp some document. Does this pass the lay live with these tests? And <laughs> let it go into the bureaucracy. Uh, but I, in a way, you were kind of doing that, you know? Like, does this pass? May we live with ease tests? May we live with ease of heart? Yeah, I, I love it. I mean, I, I think there's something. So, so beautiful, especially a loving kindness meditation, which I think resonates with so much of what I found powerful in my, Mm -hmm. in my own tradition. And and I think part of it that that I learn from Buddhist teachings and Sikh teachings, which feels in many ways absent from, from what we see in our culture today Mm -hmm. is, is the capacity to find compassion for people that you don't like. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and, and part of, part of what the loving kindness meditation, uh, is designed to do, um, and, and intends to do is to move beyond the people who are closest and most familiar to you and, and even extend to the people who, 
mm-hmm. you might see as your opposition. And, and this is the teaching in Sikh tradition as well. And, and it goes back, I think, to this worldview of ikongar or interdependence, which, um, which is, which is so much at contrast with, with Western philosophy, which is derived from, or at least focused on, uh, the individual self, right? I, mm-hmm. Descartes, uh, famous phrase, I think, therefore I am. Um, that's not, that's not how we view the world in our traditions. And, and we are very much focused on we are, we are a part of something larger. And then I think what changes here, and this is, you know, part of what I love about this worldview, what really, what this enables is the ability to, to not get so wrapped up in the fears or the threats of the people around us because they are different. But actually to start from that place of connection. And then what we learn, at least from the teachings of Guru Nanak, is that the expressions of difference are actually still rooted in that oneness. And therefore, they're not to be feared or worried about or even uh, seen as the enemy. They, they are to be celebrated and cherished. And I think, you know, loving kindness is at the core of that difference, the, the enabler of that vision of connectedness. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think this is something that has really saved me in my experiences with hatred and racism in this country. I think it would have been a lot easier to get sucked in and to become hateful and angry myself, but it's, it's the intentional um, engagement with other people and the mm-hmm. creation around me and seeing the oneness that binds us all together that, that lets me go beyond the, the hatred and anger that, that they might send my way. Well, it's an interesting question to me, you know, because um, I think it's a profound, essential question for humanity. And it also may be um, distinctly so for men. You know, I wonder about men in American culture. And when I mm. say that, you know, the Sikh... Um, Tradition has has a little bit of an aura of being very masculine. That can also be in a great way, you know. Like, what would what would it be to be a warrior of the heart? What does it mean to face one's fears and, and see? Well, uh, you know, I, I remember so distinctly in myself, like doing intensive loving kindness and starting to do loving kindness for a difficult person, which in Burma was called the enemy, uh, making it even more dramatic, you know. And I would start to actually feel some care and compassion. And I think, I don't want to, you know. <laughs> I don't know that I want to be where that's going to lead me because I did. You know, but it was such a, a strong feeling of like, danger, <laughs> you know, like, take uh, care. Yeah, it really, it really is the, the masculinity culture. And, and this is, you know, we can point to, how it's manifesting itself in the American context and we can see yeah. hypermasculinity in Punjabi and South Asian context. But I, I think, you know, if, if we think about what that really means culturally, um, mm-hmm. what, what we lose uh, when we don't bring out these other aspects. I mean, I mean, part of what we are asked to do in our, in our wisdom traditions is to lean into uh, humility mm-hmm. and vulnerability and openness. And these are, these are not seen as typical masculine mm-hmm. characteristics. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think without them, I mean, where do we end up? I think, I think we end up right where we are societally. And it becomes so difficult to swim upstream 
Mm-hmm. And to really create your own person in, in ways that mesh with those values when the rest of the world is telling you, actually, this is not who you're supposed to be. And you mm-hmm. lose, you lose out if you try and live this way. Mm-hmm. So it, it is, it is a real challenge, I think, for, for all of us right now. And it requires a, a profound culture shift before we can get to a place where we can, as, as you were saying before, uh, live, live with the ease uh, that comes with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that is such a theme uh, in your book, the process of coming into contact with environments that are quite different from ourselves and how we navigate those circumstances. And for you, that was a huge part of your journey, being a young, brown-skinned, sick man growing up in Texas and being different from our surrounding community. Your context can have such different impacts on different people. And for some, of course, it's really traumatizing. And for others, it's galvanizing. And for me, I remember that moment um, in my first Asian studies philosophy class when it became galvanizing because I realized, oh, you know, the differences are only on a certain level. Uh, if we go underneath that, look at what we find. We find one another. Um, that came from yeah. the Buddha's description of suffering, you know, that it was not unique unto me, you know, in some way, even though in some funny way I always felt it had been. Um so it's an interesting question for me that comes up about how much support or uh, what do we need as people, as an individual human being, how much community we need to build a healthy sense of self and um, so that we're strong enough to express our uniqueness. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such an, you know, somebody asked me the other day um, how, how it is that I, as a, someone who who understands himself as religiously committed mm-hmm. uh, could have such a pluralistic worldview. Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of that I attribute to Sikh philosophy, which, which very much offers the perspective that one need not uh, follow one particular path to achieve enlightenment, mm-hmm. that there, there is enlightenment for everybody. And so that, that I, that I believe, but I think, you know, part of my upbringing and, and I think part of what it means to come from the margins of society is that you really don't have a choice, but to figure out how to deal with the difference around you. Mm-hmm. And if you're in, if you're in the norm or if you're in the mainstream, uh, you might be able to get along without ever having to wonder, well, what do I, what do I do with the people who are different from me? Right. Maybe I can dismiss them. Maybe I can ignore them. Uh, maybe I can integrate them at times when it's convenient, but mm-hmm. it's not really at the forefront of your experience. And for me growing up, and for many people on the margins, you you have mm-hmm. to figure out your own answer to that question. And so so to your point about what do we do uh, with our own understanding of ourselves and our traditions, I mean, part of it, I think, is, is a very simple uh, experience of learning to 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 start from a different place, mm-hmm. um, to start from this point of, let me look underneath you first and see what is at the core uh, that might bind us together. As, mm-hmm. as I describe in the title of the book, it's it's the metaphor of light uh, as it appears in, in Sikh writings and, and so many different traditions. The light that we all share, uh, the light that is inside of each of us. And then when we start from that point, then we can go get to a kind of experience in which all of our various backgrounds and cultures and worldviews and all of this are just, I mean, it's, 
it's like a symphony. And, and, you know, part of, part of me is sort of rolling my eyes at myself because it's, it's cliche in a way, Mm -hmm. but I think the best, the best among us who have lived in this world and who have been able to see the world in this way for what it is, uh, they, they have found immense joy, uh, in, in this worldview. And so that's, I'm not there. I'm aspiring towards, but I think the daily practice is, is what really gets us there. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think that's, that is really true. Like we, uh, you know, it, with certain backgrounds or certain discoveries, you know, brand new discoveries in life, we, we have a sense of a path and then the rest is really up to us. You know, we, I think we do mm-hmm. need a community in the sense of reminders. We need encouragement. We need inspiration and we may need, um, direction to at least what to experiment with in terms of that path, you know, but mm. uh, there's something about the doing of this so hard and it's, it, <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it doesn't meet logic. Like, you know, I have a friend, Amishi Jha, who's a neuroscientist who has a book that just came out. She works in Miami largely and she asserts based on the findings of her lab, she works with very high stress people like military people and first responders, you know, firefighters and so on and and very, very high performance um, sports people. And what her lab found was something like, I can't ever remember. um, I think it was like 13 minutes a day. will actually have practice of some kind of meditation or spiritual practice will actually give you the results that you want just like 13 minutes a day. And, because we're friends, I always tease her and I always say, first of all, I don't know that it's good to go for the bare minimum, you know, like, um, but also, uh, it may not be that healthy to go for the bare minimum, but, um, I'm always struck by nobody saying you have to do this or in a way you have to do it all day long because it becomes your life, but you don't have to do it in a formal prescripted stylized sense all day long. You don't have to do it for an hour, you know, like, look at that. And, uh, you know, there's there's something about that that I think is so different than realizing, you know what, only 14 minutes a day, and that's going to be really hard. And this part, right. you know, like well, it's not that easy. It's not. It's not. It's not. It's not easy at all. And then, and then I think about the teaching within within Sikh philosophy, which is in its in its best form, uh, this practice becomes so deeply internalized that it's part of your being no matter what you're doing mm-hmm. so so the point being you're no longer just sitting on the floor and meditating you're actually out in the world mm-hmm. and engaging with the world and contributing to the world and at the same time this is resonating or vibrating inside of you mm-hmm. and um yeah to, to your point about it being so hard and and to my own point about being so far uh from that from that aspiration it is uh it is both exciting and inspiring and also, uh, I, I don't know, somewhat, so, somewhat embarrassing to be, to be so, so far away from, <laughs> from where I ultimately hope to be. That's funny. I think, I think self-knowledge has a great deal, you know, to be said for, like I always say to Amishi, like um, what, what her lab actually says is let's say 13 minutes a day, um, three to five times a week. And I always say to her, three to five times a week doesn't work for me, Michelle. Like, if it's three to five times a week, it would be Monday, and I'll think, I'll start on Wednesday. 
every Wednesday. I'm like, I'll, I'll be on Saturday. The three times on Saturday will be done. I never do it. But every day is every day. And so we find our own way. But that's often in connection with others, just a small group even, that share their experiences or resolve upon some experience. And, and we help each other kind of get clarity. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, and I think, you know, part of, part of the beauty of it all, at least, at least for me, um, m- maybe the way to say it is this has been part of my, my maturation. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that the maturation for me has, has very much been accepting, uh, that even in a society where we are, um, constantly presenting ourselves as perfect or in a, in a profession uh, where we are taught to present ourselves as having all the answers um, or in a, in a, you know, world of activism where we are told, you know, we, we, we can never be happy until we fix all the problems. I mean, part of, part of what's really changed for me um, is being much more comfortable in, in, in my own reality of saying, well, you know what? I'm 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 not perfect, and I, I'm not yeah. I'm not anywhere close. And I am I am I, I know this is different from how I have been socialized, but it is there is something really. It, it's it's kind of that that same point about uh, letting go of of this belief that we can control everything, and mm-hmm. how liberating that mm-hmm. is. It's it's very similar. Just letting go of this pretense uh, that we are perfect or have the answers. Um, and, and just lean into our own humility. I mean, I, I, that's, that's been a really powerful experience for me. Well, along those lines, let's talk about anger, which I know has been a big part of your own personal journey. And clearly there are many valid reasons to be angry. So much injustice and systemic inequities that we're seeing in the clear light of day. And But you've yourself been the subject of so much direct racism and Yet one of the core tenets of your life is kindness. So let's talk about anger and all these different levels. Is kindness how you came to work with your own anger? Yeah. I mean, there, there have been different points in my life at which um, dealing with anger has had different permutations. Um, and I would say, you know, one of, one of the early ones was when I was in middle school. And um, I, on the soccer field, it would just come out of me and maybe that that's more natural <laughs> for a you know prepubescent uh mm-hmm. boy and and so that that was sort of its own thing but i'll tell you the one the one that was most profound for me um you know over the years i, I learned to deal with the anger that's directed my way in ways that doesn't perpetuate or recycle or recreate anger and and, and i'd gotten pretty good at it i think and then in 2012, a white supremacist uh, goes into a sick place of worship in Wisconsin and massacres the congregation. Mm-hmm. And then before he uh, can be held accountable for his actions, uh, he kills himself. And I was so angry at this person. And, you know, in part because his hate, his inability to control his own hate now had consequences for so many innocent people Mm -hmm. uh, in part because he was so cowardly that he couldn't face what he did. And, and, you know, people started to say, well, you should forgive him. And in my head, I was like, what, what are you talking about? Like this person never apologized. He created immense harm. Like what is there to forgive? 
and I think it was it was after a few weeks of the incident, and I was still angry, and and, and my anger was directed at him. But what I realized was he was gone, and he was not going to be affected by my anger. And so, where could I direct it? And the only place that I realized that my anger was going to affect was was me, like mm. inside of myself. And it felt corrosive, and it felt toxic. And, and that to me was the first time in a long time uh, that I felt like there was a residue of anger that I couldn't figure out how to manage for myself. And it took a long process of, of introspection, and, and it took many attempts. <laughs> and by mm-hmm. attempts, I, I mean to indicate that there was some failure here in, in making progress. And in part of, I think, part of my own journey, and I, I write about this journey in the book at length because it was such an important process for me. Part of part of what I what I really learned through this was that our our cultural understanding that you find um, you find humanity in people by looking for commonalities. Um, what I learned through that is, you know, there's 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 a limitation on that approach. It's it's not a perfect approach, or at least as good as we think it is. Because in this case. I tried that and I looked at, um, you know, the white supremacist message boards that he used to frequent. Mm -hmm. Uh, I learned about as much as I could about his life. I couldn't find a single thing that would make me feel like we had something in common. Mm -hmm. So it was a really deep, deeply transformative experience for me to move my approach to say, actually, it's not recognizing our shared interests or our shared mm-hmm. backgrounds mm-hmm. that's going to bring us together uh, there has to be something deeper than that and to your point earlier uh, that's that's what the buddha taught right like let's start from mm-hmm. what is underneath all of the fluff that makes us who we are mm-hmm. and look at who we really are and and that's the starting mm-hmm. point and so it was that experience for me that really helped me figure out and um how to manage the the anger in a really in a really deep and profound way for myself. Yeah, because we're feeling it, you know, and it's um how it is and we have to I think really and this is quite hard too, you know, uh we have to really allow ourselves to um honor the dignity of every feeling that arises because it's there. You know, and not disparage it exactly. and feel like bad or just ashamed of it but you know what is it what is what is happening here and um you know often embedded in in states that are destructive and and damaging if they run wild or or some beautiful attributes that we need to harness and not have run so wild and um and yet not fight you know and do battle with and it's that sweet spot right there you know right yeah exactly it's what's so difficult and so liberating yeah, yeah, it really is. And, you know, part of part of what I look at, part of what I see as I look at the world around us right now is that so many people are so angry and rightfully so, right? This is what you're saying, that, that it's yeah. not, it's not so easy to dismiss anger because in many cases it's justified and there can be some good that comes out of it. But I, I think at the same time, we, we also have to be very careful and, and walk the line because when we are seeking to create change and we're driven by anger rather than love 
um, then, then ultimately we are going to create more problems than we solve. And in many cases, we're going to recreate the same problems that we're trying to fix because we're, we're operating out of a place of anger. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the, the, it is, it is a really tricky thing for each of us to figure out how do we, how do we navigate this very real and natural human emotion in a way that, that creates and constructs rather than destroys and divides. And we're seeing far mm-hmm. too much of the latter right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we certainly are. And so kindness, I guess one could say that it's, it's an essential part of the holding environment with which we're going to attempt to be with anything that arises, including anger, including some very painful feelings. And, uh, you know, one of the things that fascinates me about kindness, and I obviously am fascinated by it, is um, how dreary it seems, you know, and how how much people are not drawn to it necessarily. And society in general, I think, in the West, would tend to consider kindness as a kind of, at best, a secondary value. It's like, it's all right, you know, it's not great, but it's okay, you know, if you're going <laughs> to not be able to be courageous and brilliant and wonderful, like, Okay, be kind. It's nice, you know, like, but it really is of greatness. I think if any of us were looking back at some real life incident where someone was incredibly kind to us, we would feel so grateful. We wouldn't feel dismissive at all. Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, I, again, I'm thinking about my daughters and what I'm hoping to instill in mm-hmm. them. And people often ask me, you know, what do you want your girls to do when they grow up? And, and I, you know, in my head, I'm like, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care what they do. I care who they are. And then I want them to be happy. And I, I mean, I truly believe that kindness is, is a pathway to happiness. It is, it is to me of utmost importance that that they are able to see uh, the light in other people because that will ultimately help them see the light in themselves too. And so, yeah, kindness to me, I I agree with you. I, I laughed when you said it on my side here, because it's so true that, Everyone, everyone says they care about kindness, but it, when you when you really push, they'll say, "Yeah, it's it's secondary to all of these other things that that move us in whatever mm-hmm. direction that we're trying to go in." Is and and to me, you know, the the direction is is very clear, and then kindness has to be part of that journey. How do you uh, think you teach your children empathy? I've heard parents say that they think empathy is the most important trait a parent can try to impart to a child. It's you know it's it's I, in some ways it feels more urgent and in some ways it feels easier today and and maybe this is a function of of living in a cosmopolitan city like New York mm-hmm. um, but but I think part of what empathy really means to me is is learning to see the humanity in the people who seem most different mm-hmm. and and here where we are my girls are constantly encountering incredible difference and having to figure out um, what they make of these people. And and I think that exposure at at an early level and and being able to be open and have conversations about, well, why is that person in a wheelchair? Mm -hmm. Do we think less of them? Uh, Why is that person um, sleeping on the street? Do we think less of them? And really being able to walk through these conversations with our girls about who these people are, what their lives might be like, and really just giving them a glimpse into a different experience. To me, 
that is that is the kind of empathy that I wish people had for me uh, mm-hmm. when I was growing up in Texas. And so it's it's what I've it's it's the best that I've learned. Uh, giving giving our kids the opportunity uh, to walk in someone else's shoes, however 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 that might look, uh, is is a really important practice. I think for for nurturing everything. Well, in research circles, um, these days, um, empathy is, I mean, what you just described is an entire journey. And with empathy as a word describing mostly the beginning of that journey, because sometimes we see that person in a wheelchair or we see the difficulty they're having, somebody's having in accomplishing a task or something. We're so tired to begin with, but we feel so overwhelmed. We feel so exhausted what, that we don't have we feel we have the uh, wherewithal to actually respond, you know, well to that. So that mm-hmm. also brings up the question of self-compassion and it brings up boundaries, not in an egoic sense, but in a healthy sense. Like I can't mm-hmm. fix everything in life. You know, I will try to be maybe an exemplar of empathy and compassion wherever I go and all these different conversations and in my actions and I will feed people. I promise, you know, all of that, and, and yet, um, I wish that this world were one where I could just say, "Puff, your suffering's gone," and it's not. And so, there seems to be in that growth of empathy and its movement toward a more complete state. Uh, there are elements of wisdom, there are elements of understanding limits, and understandings of balance. You know, caring about ourselves as well that are also going to have to play a role. Yeah. Yeah. As you're saying that, I'm thinking about, you know, a lesson that is really, is really tricky to teach kids because kids by nature uh, are egocentric. The world, the work, the world that they know is, is essentially them. And, and they have to be taught uh, that there is a world that's larger than them. And so part of, part of what I'm reflecting on as, as I'm hearing you speak is, is the cultivation of empathy through humility, recognizing mm-hmm. that the world is greater than them. And, and part of that is to accept that other people have their own true experiences. And so for, for my girls to be able to recognize that just because their life is one way doesn't mean that everyone's life is the same way mm-hmm. and that we each are, have our own challenges that we're trying to sort out. Um, that is, I think that's an incredibly important aspect of, of cultivating empathy that again, we're, we're not really taught uh, mm-hmm. in society otherwise. And you, you might get lucky and stumble into it somehow. Uh, but for the most part, these are, these are not things we're thinking about or, or teaching our kids as they're getting older. It was so fascinating. And before we finish, I would love to invite you to lead us in a guided practice of some kind. Um, as we as we uh, take a moment to make real and you know realize uh, all these different values, yeah, sure. So I will share uh, what is the uh, initial composition in Sikh scripture. It's the first that we learn. Ikongar, the term that I shared before, is one of them, and essentially they are all attributes of the divine uh, that are articulated as qualities. And the idea is we each have the potential to realize these qualities because we're each equally divine. Um, and so I'll, I'll share the words and then I will uh, repeat them um, in, in the original. Uh, the words are ikonkar, 
This is the term for the oneness of humanity and creation. Satnam, the identity of truth. Kartapurak, the creative being. Mirpo, fearlessness. Mirvad, without hatred or enemy. Akal Murat, the being without time or death. Ajuni, without birth. Sapang, self-created. Gurpursad, realized through the Guru. So I will, that is the, it's called the Mool Mantra, which means the root, the root teaching, the core teaching. And I will, I will repeat it uh, a few times as, as we might uh, in a Sikh meditative practice. Ekonkare satinam karta purak nirpo nirvad akal sajuni sapam gur Ekonkar satinam karta purak
ਅਕਾਲ ਮੂਰਤ ਅਜਨੀ ਸਪਨ ਗੁਰ ਪ੍ਰਸਾਦ ਇਕ ਓਮਕਾਰ ਸਤਨਾਮ ਕਰਤਾ ਪੁਰਖ ਨਿਰਪੋ ਨਿਰਵਾਨ ਅਕਾਲ ਮੂਰਤ ਅਜਨੀ ਸਪਨ ਗੁਰ ਪ੍ਰਸਾਦ All right, I will pause here. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. It was beautiful. Of course. My pleasure. Thank you all together for joining me today. And to learn more about Simran's work, you can visit Simranjit Singh. It's S-I-M-R-A-N-J-E-E-T-S-I-N-G-H dot org. Or get, get yourself a copy of his book, The Light We Give, available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Thank you to all who are listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast for the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.